This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This month, I'm sharing three stories about holidays that were anything but jolly. This time, I'll tell you about a terrible Christmas Eve in 1985, when a tiny body was discovered frozen at the side of the road. It would take two years before the child's identity was discovered. Meanwhile, the person responsible for such a cold-hearted act would be on the run as a suspect in another killing and would later become a person of interest in two other brutal murders. Was Eli Stutzman, who was born and raised in an Ohio Old Order Amish community, what some strongly suspected, and no one ever thought possible, an Amish serial killer? Join me this week for Chapter 2 of Holidays from Hell, The Case of Little Boy Blue. On the morning of December 24, 1985, a man was traveling down U.S. Highway 81 near the Kansas-Nebraska border. The temperatures were hovering around 9 degrees Fahrenheit that Christmas Eve morning when Chuck Cleveland left his home for some early morning hunting outside of his small community of Chester, Nebraska. He made a quick turn off a road that led past a fallow cornfield in the hopes of doing some early morning game hunting in the hills just beyond it. The day was cloudy and gray, and he stayed warm inside his truck's cab with the heat turned up and his radio on low volume tuned into a local country western station. It was just the type of peaceful morning that promised a relaxing Christmas holiday with family and friends. But this peaceful feeling would soon be shattered. In its place would be a sinking in the pit of Chuck Cleveland's stomach and would put a damper on the entire Christmas season for the Southern Nebraska community. As Cleveland drove the desolate road, he caught a glimpse of something bright blue off the freeway through his peripheral vision. It was particularly out of place in the frozen gray landscape. Curious, he pulled his truck over to the side of the road, stopped, and got out. It was immediately apparent that he was looking at something that was very out of place. It froze him to his core, even more so than the below zero wind chill temperature. Just 15 feet off the side of the road lay the body of a child dressed in a one-piece baby blue blanket sleeper and barely concealed behind a small clump of frozen prairie grass. The coloring on the face of the small body made it obvious to any observer that the child was dead. Cleveland drew no closer, not wanting to contaminate what to him appeared to be a crime scene. Instead, he returned to his truck, called his office on his two-way radio, and asked the dispatcher to immediately notify the sheriff's office that he just found a body. Deputies from the Thayer County Sheriff's Department arrived at the scene where the body was discovered minutes after being notified and sealed off the area until the Nebraska State Patrol Mobile Crime Unit could arrive to search the area. Later, both the Kansas Bureau of Investigation and the FBI would be called in to try to solve the mystery of what would be called the Little Boy Blue case, due to the fact that the boy was found in a blue blanket sleeper. 
One of the first things that investigators noted about the body was that the blanket sleeper the child was wearing appeared to be brand new. There was no dirt or any wear and tear at the bottom of the feet of the blanket sleeper. This was a one-piece blanket sleeper that covered the body from the neck to the feet and zipped up the front. It was something you would normally see on a much younger child. This child appeared to be anywhere between 8 and 11 years old, and some made the comment that the blanket sleeper looked a little too babyish for a child that age to be wearing. The body had been found face up, and it appeared that animal predation had caused the soft tissues of the nose and mouth to be eroded so that it made some of the features unrecognizable. Dark marks were also found on the neck, and there were bruises on the forehead of the child, making investigators at first conclude that the child had either been beaten or strangled to death. An autopsy would be performed, and it would determine that the child was a male, about 10 years of age, with blonde hair and freckles. He was described as healthy and well cared for. There was no damage to the skull or any type of blunt force injury that they could determine may have caused his death. The marks and bruises that were found on his face and neck were also determined to be as a result of exposure to the elements and not strangulation. The autopsy report would also state that the child had probably died no more than 36 hours before the body was discovered. But the most baffling thing about this case was that investigators found no reports of a child that was missing matching the description of Little Boy Blue. The Nebraska State Patrol released a poster with a composite drawing picture of the boy and asked anyone for any information they may have to help identify him. Some of the other details on the poster said that the child weighed approximately 55 pounds, was approximately 4 foot 2 inches tall, with a gap between his front teeth and a brown birthmark on the inside of his right calf. There was also a small circular scar on his right forearm. The blue pajamas with the zip-up front was made by the brand Regal which was sold at that time in Kmart department stores. Tips started to pour into the state police, but there was still no match made and the child remained unidentified. The boy's body was kept preserved in cold storage until they could make an identification. But since that didn't happen for several months, the child was finally laid to rest in the spring. Their community came together after their hearts went out upon discovering that, that this child found dead and frozen at the side of the road on Christmas Eve was unclaimed. They were stunned that anything like that could happen in their community. They decided to give him a proper burial and named the child Matthew, meaning gift of God. One person donated a burial plot. Others donated a suit for the child to be buried in. And still others donated flowers, a coffin, and a headstone. One thing the autopsy did not determine was the child's cause of death. It wouldn't be until two years later that the boy would finally be identified. In December 1987, the Reader's Digest magazine ran a story about Little Boy Blue, the child who had been found discarded in a ditch on Christmas Eve two years earlier. The Reader's Digest is an American publication of general interest stories that's been in circulation since 1922. It was the best-selling magazine in the United States up until 2009, and it has a circulation of over 10 million copies. Many Americans are familiar with the Reader's Digest. 
an Amish woman in Ohio happened to see the story and thought of Danny Stutzman, her relative that she hadn't seen in years. The wife of this couple had read the story and also wondered if it could be the boy that she knew as Danny Stutzman. At that point, they contacted the Chester, Nebraska Police Department. Investigators followed up on this lead and learned details about the little boy and his family. One of the things that they heard was that his mother had died when he was just a baby in a mysterious fire. And some thought that her husband may have been responsible, but those were just rumors. However, the husband, whose name was Eli Stutzman, was also said to possibly be on the run regarding a homicide that he was connected to. A former roommate of his had been found murdered just months before the discovery of the body of this little boy, who investigators were now trying to determine whether or not was Eli Stutzman's son. But now with all these connections between Eli Stutzman and mysterious deaths and homicide, they had to wonder, was it possible that Eli Stutzman was responsible for multiple deaths? Did they have an Amish serial killer on their hands? It would take police and investigators in multiple states to unravel this mystery. What they all thought, however, was that either Eli Stutzman was the most unlucky man on the planet, and tragic deaths just seemed to follow him wherever he went, or he was a murderer. Eli Stutzman was born on September 28, 1950, into an Amish family in Apple Creek, Ohio. The Stutzmans were members of the Schwarzentruber Amish group, which is the more conservative of the religious Amish order. These members are called the Old Order. The Schwarzentruber group was the largest settlement group in Ohio. They did not utilize any technology, indoor plumbing, or cars. Not only were they prohibited from driving, but they were also prohibited from even riding in cars. The term Amish may be generally understood by the population outside of the faith, but I did a little bit more research to get a little bit more information about exactly who the Amish are. The Amish are from traditionalist Anabaptist Christian fellowships with Swiss-German origins. They are closely related to Mennonite churches, which is another Anabaptist denomination. In the early 18th century, many Amish and Mennonites moved to Pennsylvania, and the Old Order Amish retained most of their traditional culture, including refraining from modern conveniences like labor-saving devices, machines, and technology. They believed that using uh, modern technology made one less dependent on the community, and community and family are one of the most important tenets of the Amish faith. They also believe that the acquisition of such material things may cause a person to not value labor, which is also highly valued. And they also try to avoid becoming materialistic and competitive. They prioritize community over individualism, and they place a high value on humility, submitting oneself to the will of Jesus and the will of the collective rather than the individual. The Amish dress similarly to one another, and this also signifies that everyone is equal. The men and women both dressed plainly. The men wear solid color shirts, usually white, with broad-brimmed black hats, simple suits that are also black. Men grow out their beards once they get married. That signifies that they are married. Women also wear muted colors, calf-length dresses, bonnets, and aprons. Single women wear black bonnets, and married women wear white to signify their marital status, 
since no wedding rings or other jewelry is worn. The form of transportation used is buggies, horse and cart, rather than the use of automobiles. Electricity and telephones are also prohibited. And this is partially due to self-reliance, like I explained earlier, but it also is a way to avoid dependence on the government as well, which is something that they seriously try to avoid in most instances. Uh, most Old Order Amish speak Pennsylvania Dutch. Non-Amish people are referred to as English or Englishers. But today, almost all Amish are functionally bilingual in Pennsylvania Dutch and English. Members who reject the values of the Amish community and cannot be convinced to repent may be excommunicated or shunned by the community. People who are born into the faith choose whether to stay within the Amish community and live out that lifestyle or leave and in effect reject their faith and become more worldly. So when they reach about the age of 16, Amish youth must decide whether they will remain in the community or leave to join the English world. Almost 90% remain in the community. But before they commit themselves to remaining for life in the Amish community, they're allowed to basically have an adolescence where they can sow their oats during a period of time called rumspringa. This loosely translates into jumping or hopping around. So basically trying out different activities. They may engage at this time in worldly activities, including drinking, dating, and sex without the risk of being excommunicated. Because at this point, they are not yet formally baptized into the Amish faith and into the community. So that tells you a little bit about the background that Eli Stutzman grew up in. And like I said, he grew up in the old order, which was the more conservative branch of um, the Amish. His parents were Eli Harvey Stutzman and Susan Miller Stutzman. His father was a minister and by all accounts, very strictly followed the rules of the Amish community and the Amish faith. Eli Harvey and Susan had 13 children, of which Eli was the fourth. And he was also called Eli like his father, but to differentiate from his father, he was Eli E and his father was Eli H. But the family called Eli, Eli Ali. Now, Eli Stutzman from the very, very early age was very different. And this, as you can imagine, was not going to go over very well within this type of community. He, first of all, hated farm work, which, of course, the entire family and the entire community cooperatively worked farms in order to provide food, income, and it was also the work ethic was very important. But since Eli decided that he hated farm work, he often acted very lazy, according to the family, and would try to get out of chores by saying he didn't feel well. The other thing about Eli was that he liked being the center of attention which, of course, placing a high value on humility was, again, something that made him stood out from the community. Eli grew up, he had a slight stutter, but he was very personable. He was charming. He was even popular in school, but he was also rebellious and from a very early age lied about just about everything, even things that it seemed silly to lie about. He would break the rules constantly. He just didn't fit into the community. He didn't want to follow the rules. And he would break these rules, but he would convincingly place the blame on other people. Like I said, he was a very good manipulator and liar. By the age of six or seven, the family said that they knew that Eli Ali was a habitual liar. 
His father was very strict, and he would often punish his son for lying by doling out whippings, which was the form of punishment of children at that time in that community. But the more his father would punish him, the more Eli resisted the control. So it didn't work on him at all. A cousin of Eli's said that, quote, Eli always thought he was a little too good for the rest of us. We've already established that Eli did not like following rules and he did not like doing chores. What he did love was horses. It was said from an early age he had a knack with horses, training horses, breaking horses, and that was a skill that he came to naturally. He also loved money. He loved acquiring money, something not highly valued in the community. As a matter of fact, it was something that they tried to reject, trying to, to amass material gains and money. And the other thing is that he loved immersing himself in the modern world. So all of these things you can see that this is going to be going against the grain in this community. Eli was also said to be a very good-looking young man. He had blue eyes. He only stood about five foot six inches tall and weighed about 140 pounds, so he was slight of figure. He had dark hair and, like I said, was considered handsome and would be considered a catch in that community for the young women who were expected to pair up and marry a nice Amish boy. So looking for something to do in order to help the community and to have work and not have to work on the farm. In 1971, Eli became a teacher at the local school. It was a one-room schoolhouse. And he did this even though he had only acquired an eighth grade education, but that was about the extent of education for most of the community. Eli decided to move out of his parents' house, which is something that wasn't normally done. Normally, Uh, Children would live with their parents until they were married. Eli, at the age of 21, moved out of his parents' house and moved across the street to live with his neighbors. They were the less conservative side of the Amish community. In the eyes of the the girls in his community, Eli was a catch. He, like I said, was good-looking. He was personable. And plenty of girls wanted to have his attention. He didn't seem to be very interested, though, in dating But there was one girl he became interested in. He met 16-year-old Ida Gingrich at a singing. It was a gathering held for Amish youth, a place for boys and girls to meet. They would sing hymns sitting at a long table facing each other. And in between songs, they were able to socialize. The singing would last until about 10 o'clock at night. And at that point, adults would bring out baked goods and drinks for the teens to enjoy as they mingled for an hour or two with each other. It was a way for people to meet their future spouse. If a boy is interested in a girl, he can offer to give her a ride home in his buggy. The teens can start attending these singings when they are 16 years old. 16-year-old Ida caught the eye of Eli, and she liked him immediately. Ida was considered a beauty. She had long blonde hair and a cute dimpled smile, and she fell hard for Eli and at that point forward wanted no one else. They dated for four years. There was an event that happened in Eli's life in 1972 when he was just about 19 or 20 years old. He just one day collapsed and complained about pain. Some people thought that this was just another way for Eli to try to get out of work, but they did consult medical attention for him, but nothing seemed to really work. He was so bad off that he was in and out of consciousness for almost 24 hours before a doctor was called to come and see him. 
The doctor suggested that he did rest, but that did not improve the pain that he was feeling. At this point in the story, I need to tell you that a lot of people believed that Eli had a mental condition. There was a couple of reasons for this. One is just the fact that he acted so differently from everyone um, inside the Amish community that they just thought he was a little odd or something was off. This on its own could cause people to maybe talk and gossip and say, you know, maybe something's mentally wrong with him. But we'll find out that his father had a lot to do with this. His father, maybe because he was embarrassed by Eli's behavior or because he actually believed that there was something really, quote, wrong with his son, that he started telling people that Eli had a psychiatric problem or a mental condition. The doctor that came to try to help Eli uh, after this collapse reported that he found the boy in a, quote, depressed and nervous state. Eli's father did completely believe that his son was suffering from a mental illness. And these was interesting because the reason that his father gave later on for saying that his son was mentally ill was, number one, that his son had upgraded his horse and buggy to be more modernized. Like I said, this was considered odd to do these types of things and just outside of the norm. Eli also had the audacity to ask for a raise at work, which his father thought was totally crazy for him to do. His father told the doctor that his son was, quote, out of control at that time and that he was worried that Eli's mental health was deteriorating. He was able to convince the doctor to involuntarily sign Eli into a mental hospital where he um, was sent to a psychiatric ward where he spent three days. Now, there was another ulterior motive that was cited for this that may also have been true, or that Eli left his parents' house and moved across the street with another family. They heard that Eli was doing some things that were not agreeable to them, and we'll talk about those in a bit. But in order to force his son to come back home where he could be under the more watchful eye of his father... His father used this collapse, this pain, whatever was going on with Eli at the time to then convince the doctor that he was mentally ill, get him committed to a psychiatric hospital. And then once he was released, that would be the reasoning for his father to force him to come home. So this is the story that was told. But if that is true, when Eli was released from the psychiatric hospital, he did not come home. He instead left the entire Schwarzenegger community. So in the summer of 1972, he sold his buggy, he bought a bike, and decided to leave the community. He was then expelled and put under a ban. In that community, the ban is where the members, other members of the community shun them, which basically means you're not supposed to socialize with them. You're not supposed to talk to them. You're not supposed to have contact with the people that are put under the ban. And the reason they do this is in a way to show them, number one, what life is like to not have your community and be a way to push you into coming back to the community because you have no support now. The way that Eli got around this was to get support from another Amish couple 
who was a New Order Amish couple. This was a Stoles who lived at Stole Farm in Marshallville, which was in Wayne County. So he moved to Wayne County to live with this New Order Amish couple, which he had more freedoms there. At the same time, um, Eli Stutzman also became friendly with the Wayne County Sheriff's officer named Jim Taylor. And this will come into play in a moment here. We'll talk about that. At this time, Stutzman also got a driver's license and purchased an automobile, a 1970 Oldsmobile. Again, something unheard of in his old order Amish community. Ida Gingrich, still in love with Eli, continued to write him letters in hopes that they would still marry, that he would come back and they would still marry. She was waiting for him. In 1973, once he reached the age of majority, Eli Stutzman registered as a conscientious objector of the military because American males at that time had to fill out a military draft card. And this was something that as a, a person who was raised Amish would, uh, would reject, would be joining military service. But in order to fulfill his obligation to the government, he instead took a position as a hospital orderly. And so he was working at a local hospital at that time. But in late 1974, Eli Stutzman helped the Wayne County Sheriff's Department because he had the inside scoop, apparently, about farmers in the area who were growing marijuana. This was 1974. So, of course, this is something that is becoming uh, more prevalent, even in the Midwest. He had his good friend, Officer Jim Taylor, who worked in the Wayne County Sheriff's Department, and so he decided he was going to become an informant and help his friend. There's a catch here because in other research that I did, a lot of people believed that Eli himself was growing marijuana or selling marijuana. He was definitely involved in the drug trade in some minor way at that point, which is another reason why he probably knew which farmers were actually growing the marijuana because he was involved in the drug trade. But he was kind of... I guess you could say like a double agent and uh, informing on these marijuana growers to the Wayne County Sheriff's Department. Of course, it didn't take long for people to figure out that he was a snitch, probably because he had a big mouth. He used to talk a lot. He had a very big ego. He was a bit of a narcissist and uh, probably went around telling people how much good he was doing um, to help the Sheriff's Department. It, it wasn't long before people found out or at least suspected that Eli Stutzman was one of the narcs in the department. Stutzman then claimed that he was receiving death threats as people found out that he was a snitch. And one day, his landlord, Ed Stoll, found Eli lying in a puddle of blood in one of his barns. Stutzman would tell a Stoll that two men jumped him, hit him with rocks, and that he had fought back by stabbing one with a pitchfork and he was then stabbed in return. He had lost a lot of blood, and he nearly died. He spent five days in the hospital, and the community actually turned against the Wayne County Sheriff's Department, saying that they were to blame for not providing Eli with the proper protection since he was helping them to bust these drug dealers. But when this attack on Eli Stutzman was investigated, people noticed that his story didn't quite match up with his wounds. The cuts on his arms were much cleaner than somebody who had been in a fight and then got stabbed with a pitchfork. And then <clears throat> after an investigation, a straight razor was found in the barn covered in Eli's blood. Officers now suspecting that Stutzman may have fabricated this um, death threat and this attack 
compared the death threat letters to Eli's handwriting and found that it matched. They also compared type notes that he had given them and they matched uh, the type on a typewriter that was Stutzman's. So why did he set this up? Like I said, from the very early age, he was an accomplished liar. He also liked having a lot of attention and he thought this would be a way to make him look like some kind of a hero. But things didn't go exactly as he planned because he did cut himself believing that um, Ed Stoll, his landlord, would be back because he was on a quick trip to drop off some hay. The trip ended up taking Stoll half an hour longer than he normally would, which is why Stutzman almost died from loss of blood before he got there. One of the first things that Stutzman said when uh, Stoll entered the barn and saw him lying in the puddle of blood was, what took you so long? After being released from the hospital, Stutzman went back to the Stoll farm and recovered there for a few days, but he would often leave and disappear, and they didn't know where he went. Once, when he was gone, Mary Jane Stoll, the wife of the farmer, found magazines tucked under Stutzman's mattress and discovered that these were things that catered to gay men. She burned the magazines and never brought it up to him again. But by this time, there was rumors that Eli Stutzman was gay and was meeting men around different towns to connect with them and for sex. On February 10th, 1975, Eli was fired from Stoll Farms. They did not give a reason, but it is pretty clear that they found these materials and this was something that they could not abide. They felt that it was wrong in the, the eyes of their faith and uh, didn't want Eli, who was acting upon his homosexuality, under their roof. So now without a place to go, in the fall of 1975, Eli agreed to return to the Schwitzen-Trober church, and he was rehired by the local Amish school to teach again. At the same time, he and Ida got back together and uh, became engaged. One of the things that we'll see about Eli Stutzman for the rest of his life is how much in conflict he was with these two sides of himself. One was as a gay man who wanted to be free and wanted to live his life the way he wanted to, and also to the pressure he felt to conform to the values of his faith and his family upbringing. Even though Eli Stutzman was back in the Amish community and had become engaged to be married to Ida Gingrich, he was at the same time seen around town with another local girl. This local girl was said to be one that slept around and was kind of a party girl. But in November, Stutzman started telling friends that he had gotten Ida Gingrich pregnant and had to marry her. They married on Christmas Day 1975, and a few weeks later, Ida discovered that she was pregnant. And at the same time, we know that Eli Stutzman was a gay man, yet he was trying to live up to what was expected of him by his father and his community, that he become married, that he work a farm, that he have a wife and children, and yet this went counter to everything that he actually wanted for his own life. 
Soon after they were married, Ida began complaining that her husband often left her at home alone at night. And the truth was, was that Eli Stutzman was secretly meeting other men for sex. He had started placing personal ads in publications that connected gay men for sex and for relationships. On September 7, 1975, Ida gave birth to their first child, a boy they named Daniel Eli. When Daniel was six months old, they bought a farm and moved into their new home. In the summer of 1977, Eli Stutzman was now living and working on a dairy farm with his wife Ida and his 10-month-old son Danny when a fire broke out in their barn in the middle of the night. At this time, Ida was about eight months pregnant with their second child, who was due on Thanksgiving Day. In Stutzman's versions of events that night, Ida had woken him up and told him about the fire. Quote, I told her to go call the fire department, and she left for help. When I came around the barn and went into the milk house, I found her. She was lying on her back. She must have had a heart attack because of the smoke. This is what Stutzman told the rescue team from the fire department when they arrived and it was quickly determined that the woman was dead. Stutzman didn't show any outward signs of grief regarding the loss of his wife and unborn child, but some would say he was probably in shock, and the tragedy of it had not yet set in. But what was peculiar, however, was that Stutzman didn't talk or ask about his wife at all with the rescuers. Instead, he went into great detail about how earlier in the day when he arrived home, he had witnessed a lightning bolt strike the barn. He'd made the same claim to a hired farmhand, a young boy who was living and working at the Stutzman's farm. But the boy would later report that he didn't see any damage to the barn and he had been there all day. He'd not seen any lightning at all, much less a bolt that had hit the now ruined building. Another thing to note about the fire was that the day before, on July 11th, Eli and his wife had met with an attorney to draw up their wills. And the attorney had just left the farm with the signed papers at about 8.30 p.m. that night. There was extensive damage to the barn from the fire, but no damage to the main house. When Ida was discovered, there were long scratches across her forehead and on her face, but she was found lying on her back. This would later become an area of suspicion, because if she had fallen backwards, why would there be scratches on her face, investigators would ask. Even so, her death was ruled as a result of natural causes, mainly because of Eli Stutzman's own statements. He told people that his wife suffered from a bad heart and that most likely, either from the smoke or from the stress of the fire, had had a heart attack. However, later, Ida's family doctor, who had been seeing her since she was 16 years old, said that she never had any history of heart problems. The Stutzman's barn was rebuilt by the community. Interestingly, Stutzman himself was absent when this work was ongoing but it was built to his specifications. And this was also a point of interest because the barn was not rebuilt the way it was before. But Stutzman specified that more horse stables be added and not just designed specifically as a cow barn. Ida's family now came to the farm to run things and to help take care of the infant Danny. Later, Stutzman's nephews who were living there at the time would claim that their uncle Eli attempted to sexually molest them while they slept. They were in their early teens at this time, but this information did not come out until years later. Donations had poured in from strangers when they heard about the tragedy of the young mother dying in the barn fire and how her husband was left alone to raise the baby boy by himself. 
Almost exactly one year after the fire, Stutzman had another mental breakdown and was hospitalized at that time. He began taking medication and seeing a psychiatrist. But by 1978, Stutzman had a change of heart again, and this time he sold his farm and completely abandoned the Amish way of life. He started traveling around the country, first taking a job training horses in Georgia. Stutzman had always been considered to have an expert knack at training horses. Standard racehorses were often brought to the Amish community to be trained, and Stutzman was said to be able to break any horse. While he was traveling, he left Danny alone with another family. Danny at this time was about three years old. What Stutzman would not do, though, was allow his own family to take care of his child. He did not want his son raised by the Old Order Amish. He traveled as far south as Florida and worked as a busboy, but he always seemed to have a lot of cash. It was rumored once again that Stutzman was involved in the drug trade. And it was also reported at that time that he began throwing parties mostly attended by gay men. You can start to see a pattern here of Stutzman now constantly in and out of the church, in and out of the Amish way of life. Sometimes he would rededicate himself to his faith and try to live as an upstanding community member. But at other times, he completely immersed himself in, as the Amish say, worldly living and lived as an Englisher. He asked more than once to be excommunicated from the church. And this was something that was really unheard of. Excommunication was something that the elders in the community would sometimes use as a punishment or a deterrent to try to rehabilitate a wayward community member. But it was not really done where a person themselves would ask to be excommunicated. In 1979, Stutzman was placing personal ads in newspapers like The Advocate in the Men Seeking Men's section. He was now living on his own away from his community, and it seemed like his partying went out of control at this time. Not only was he doing drugs and alcohol heavily, but he was also switching from one sexual partner to another quickly. Stutzman would always be considered to be a catch by women and men alike. Men would often become infatuated with him, but Stutzman never seemed to commit to any one person, at least not for the long term. It appeared that he mostly used these men for sex, money, or to do chores for him. Danny, as a young child, would be in and out of his father's life. Sometimes he lived with him, and sometimes he'd be sent to live with family friends or other friends of Eli Stutzman's. But there were times, and there were witnesses to this, that Danny was around during these parties and even during his father's sexual encounters, and this was from the time he was a preschooler. There were even reports that sometimes the little boy would act out sexually with men, although they said he really didn't seem to know what he was doing. It was almost an innocent gesture, but it was totally inappropriate that the toddler Danny would sometimes sit on these men's laps during these parties and grab at their crotches and do other things that were sexually suggestive. Most of the people who witnessed these incidents found it disturbing, but others just thought it was funny. And again, here's another conflict. We see that young Danny is around things that are inappropriate for someone his age. We see that he's becoming sexualized by the things that he has witnessed around him. And yet most people who knew Eli Stutzman said that he was a good father to Danny. When Danny was around, and this was not consistent, Eli did take good care of him, they said. The boy always had lots of toys, was always clean and well-fed and dressed well, and he was expected to be polite to people. Some even said that he was a little bit spoiled by his father. But on the flip side of that, Danny was often home alone and he had no playmates. He spent most of his time with adults. 
Danny had a serious stutter from the time he began talking. There were many times because of this that he often remained silent. He remained so silent that sometimes people forgot that he was even around. If you remember, Eli Stutzman himself had a stutter when he was a child, but he seemed to outgrow it. But Danny, perhaps because he was not being engaged enough verbally, or maybe due to the stress of his living situation, had a stutter that continued to worsen, and his speech impediment became such a challenge that sometimes he almost couldn't speak. Meanwhile, though, Danny was very attached to his father, even though he was often left with other people. And then there was times when Stutzman was in a longer-term relationship, like for a few weeks or a couple of months, and these partners would become Danny's caretakers. So he constantly had people in and out of his life, which can be very traumatic for a young child. In 1982, Stutzman purchased a small ranch near Durango, Colorado, where he planned to train and sell horses. It was rumored that this place in Durango became a party pad, and it was also reported that Stutzman threw these large parties attended by many people, mostly gay, both men and women, and that it was an orgy-like atmosphere where drugs and booze flowed freely. Again, this is where we think that Stutzman was making his initial money. It appears that he started out making money in the drug trade and then would turn that money around into purchasing horses, training them, and then selling them, and that would become another area of income for him. In November of 1983, he was on the move once again, this time with Danny to Austin, Texas, moving into a home at 3408 Banton Road. On May 12, 1985, a body was found lying in a culvert outside of Pilot Knob, Texas. The body was found in a decomposed state lying face up. The medical examiner would estimate that the victim had died four to six weeks earlier. He had been shot once through the left eye with a 22 caliber weapon. The man was found with cut-off shorts unzipped and pulled down. There were no shoes, underwear, or shirt on the man. He was identified as having brown hair and weighing about 140 pounds. Later, he would be identified by fingerprints from a Coast Guard military record as Glenn Albert Pritchett. Glenn Albert Pritchett was born September 30, 1961, in Logan, Utah. He'd had a troubled history as a youth, running away multiple times as a teen, and he had problems with alcohol and drugs from an early age. He had an arrest record in 1984, just the year before he died, for a DUI. He worked as a maintenance man for the Postal Service while living in Montana, and had been married and was the father of two. His wife was named Sandy. His marriage had fallen apart due to his heavy drinking. After he got arrested for a DUI in 1983, his wife filed for divorce. The investigators would now determine that the man found murdered and lying in the culvert had a last known address of 3408 Banton Road in Austin. He had been a roommate of Eli Stutzman. Pritchett had met Eli Stutzman in 1984 when he was looking for work near Austin. Pritchett's murder was discovered on May 12, 1985. Around the same time, Stutzman would take his son Danny out of school, and Danny would never return there. This was a school that he had been at for at least two years. People knew that Pritchett was a roommate of Eli Stutzman, and when they didn't see him around for a while, they asked Stutzman what had happened to him. He told these people that Pritchett had left for a family emergency in Montana. Soon after Pritchett was gone, Sam Miller arrived at the ranch and began renting that vacant room that was occupied previously by Glenn Pritchett. Sam Miller was an 18-year-old Amish boy from Ohio who had come to Texas for work, 
He was described as simple. He was very inexperienced, very naive, and growing up in the Amish community, he always deferred to his elders, of which Eli Stutzman was one. He was referred to Stutzman by another friend who said that he may have worked for him on the ranch, and this is how Miller ended up in Texas. Around this same time, people started to notice that Stutzman had changed. They said he was short-tempered, that he was leaving Danny alone a lot, or a lot of times leaving him with Sam Miller to babysit, and then, quote, running around town. Danny, who is now around nine years old, was said to be spoiled with lots of toys, but also neglected and left to fend for himself. Again, Stutzman was said to be a good dad, but some people did report that he would slap Danny when he got angry with him. It was also reported during this time that Danny had become very withdrawn and his speech impediment had become very severe. About a month after Pritchett's body was found, Austin police connected Eli Stutzman to him through a 1984 police report. In this report, it was said that both Eli Stutzman and Glenn Pritchett had been written up by police when they were found drunk in a parking lot together. From this record, they found the address of 3408 Banton Road and went there a week later to talk to Stutzman. On June 15, 1985, the police arrived at his home to question him about Pritchett and told him about his former roommate's murder. But Stutzman showed no concern and asked no questions. He told them that Pritchett had left Montana on a bus on May 5th. But the body had been found on May 12th in a very decomposed state, so they knew that there was no way that Pritchett could have been alive on May 5th. Right away, they knew that Stutzman was lying to them. He also seemed very nervous and paced a lot when he was talking with police. And he admitted to them that he had weapons, including a 22 caliber rifle, the same caliber as the murder weapon. When police asked him about his sexual orientation, Stutzman told them that he was bisexual, but he said that Pritchett was not gay. He agreed when he was asked if he would take a polygraph test, and the police left after saying that they would set it up and be in contact with him. At the time when the police visited Stutzman, they did not see Danny and they did not ask about him. Sam Miller would report that after this encounter with the police, Stutzman was very nervous and started rambling. They were in a car driving together, and on the drive, Miller said that Stutzman had mumbled, saying, I killed him. He was getting in the way, and I had to do something. Stutzman then told Miller to keep quiet if he was questioned by the police. Miller also reported that Danny was in the car during this confession, but he didn't react to it at all. Soon afterward, Miller got spooked, he said, and left town, and he joined the Navy. He later told someone that he had found bloody clothes hidden in the closet in the apartment and decided to get as far away from Eli Stutzman as possible. There was a third roommate living in the home at the time who, in the records, I could not find a name for but he was in a relationship with Stutzman. This roommate reported that Stutzman had told him that he had spoken with a lawyer after speaking with the police and that his lawyer had advised him to get out of town. His roommate said that he didn't think that this was true, that an attorney would not advise you to get out of town if you were under a police investigation. The roommate had also reported at that time that Danny had been gone from the home for a couple of days, and when he asked Eli where he was, he said that his son was staying with friends. He then asked this roommate to drive him to an empty parking lot. He left him there, and he had reported that Stutzman had packed multiple bags that he'd taken with him. He said that he was going to pick up Danny and that they were going to leave town for a while. But when the roommate returned home, he was suspicious 
and went to check and found out that all of Danny's clothes were still in his room. Stutzman did leave Texas, and this time he relocated to Aztec, New Mexico. When he arrived there and connected with friends, he told them that his roommate was murdered, and he also told them that his gun was involved. He claimed to them that he was advised by an attorney to leave town until everything blew over. They also said that this made no sense to them and that he should go back and clear his name. But Stutzman said if he did that, that the police would arrest him, pick up Danny, and then send the boy to live with his parents. Stutzman said to them, quote, I'd rather see Danny dead than have him live with the Amish, end quote. In late June, Eli Stutzman took his son on a bus to Wyoming and drove to the home of Dean and Margie Barlow. He had met Dean a couple of years earlier in Durango, Colorado. He stayed with the Barlows for a little while, but said he had to leave town. So on July 5th, he signed guardianship papers over to the Barlows. He told them that his roommate had been killed and that he claimed that he was, quote, going after Glenn's killer, and that's why he couldn't have Danny around. The Barlows said that Eli would constantly talk about Glenn Pritchett's murder, and he would say that whoever murdered Glenn had used his 22 caliber rifle, and he added lots of false details to the story. The first thing to know is that ballistics had not matched to a specific weapon at all in this murder case. The investigators had only told Stutzman that it was a 22 caliber weapon that had killed the man. But this was something that Stutzman often did. He would start telling stories and he would just spin in all of these details. If you remember from his earliest days, he was a pathological liar. And pathological liars tend to give way more details than are necessary, just because they think it makes it sound more believable. And they also tend to try to make themselves look like heroes in these stories. Stutzman now began traveling around the country, going from one place to another. And what we know is at this point, he's on the run from being questioned by police about Glenn Pritchett's murder. During this time, Danny's maternal grandparents, the Gingriches, who lived in Michigan, had been looking for Danny for some time. They had been in regular contact with their grandson by phone pretty much his whole life, but had lost track of him in July. On August 21st, after not being able to contact Danny or Eli, the Gingriches contacted the Austin Police Department and filed a report that they could not find him and had no communication with their son-in-law for several weeks. Stutzman then traveled to Ohio, the place where he started out from, where he applied for a new driver's license using a new middle initial and a different birth date to disguise his true identity. He then returned to New Mexico, where he began living on a 600-acre ranch, renting out a trailer on the property. At this point, he's calling Danny frequently, and the Barlows will say that Danny always cries at the end of these calls and asks his dad when he's coming back to get him. At some point, Stutzman heard that Danny's grandparents were looking for him and tried to appease their curiosity by sending them letters saying that Danny has spent two months of the summer in a children's summer camp. He said that Danny preferred to stay with his friends while Eli was traveling, so he let him stay at the camp on an extended stay. He assured them that Danny will be starting school in New Mexico, where they live, in September. But Danny is still living with the Barlows in Wyoming in late October 1985, by this time, Dean Barlow decides that it's time to return Danny to his father. It is far past the time when he should have started school. So Dean Barlow, 
on a trip to Texas, decides to stop off at New Mexico and drop Danny off with his father. The plan was that Danny was now going to stay permanently with his father and be enrolled in school in New Mexico. Eli said, yes, please bring him, but he really wasn't planning to keep him because he found an excuse right away to have Dean Barlow pick him up on the way back from his trip to Texas. He said that his landlord was a heavy drinker and it was a bad environment for Danny to be in, to be around an alcoholic. But the truth was, is that Eli Stutzman at this time was just partying and living as a single man and he didn't want his child to be cramping his lifestyle. So he somehow convinced Dean Barlow to take Danny back to Wyoming with him. Without anything to ground him now, without his son there, without his family around who had somehow, even in his youngest days, kept Eli Stutzman in line a little bit, he was just really now out of control. He was out of control with sex. He was out of control with drugs. And his behavior became very erratic. At the beginning of November, he was fired from the farm that he was working at due to his inappropriate behavior. He was often seen walking around nude. And while Danny was staying with him at that time, he was even caught masturbating while his son was sitting in the same room. He reportedly had men coming and going at all hours. He spent lots of nights out at parties and in gay bars in Durango. And his employers just got tired of his hard partying ways. It was also believed that Stutzman at this time was now selling drugs as his main form of income, and he always had a lot of cash on hand again. Once he was fired, he would just tell people that the owner was the problem, and that's why he left the farm. He just moved on to a different farm, and in this farm, there was a lot of guns lying around, which is something that Eli Stutzman would take full advantage of. On November 11, 1980, 36-year-old David Tyler, the owner and manager of a business in Durango, Colorado, called the Automatic Transmissions Exchange, was found dead. His body was first witnessed by a passenger on a train that was passing through Durango. As she looked out the window of the train, a woman could see into the parking lot of the Automatic Transmission Exchange business. There was a truck parked in the parking lot, and she could see the body lying in the bed of the truck. She told her husband that it looked like there was a dead man lying in the back of that truck. And he told her that was crazy, that it was probably just some homeless person or a drunk who had fallen asleep in the back of a truck. But when they made the return trip back through Durango, she looked out the window again and still saw the body lying in the back of the truck. At that point, they called the police. David Tyler had last been seen on Saturday, November 9th at a Holiday Inn party attended by mostly gay men. It was determined that he had been bludgeoned to death. David Tyler was known to be a laid-back type of guy and also was known to be a local drug dealer, mostly dealing in marijuana. He had a record for drug sales and drug possession in Utah, and he was also now rumored to sell cocaine at times. He had lived in Durango for three years. He was also very well known in the gay community, and this was one of the reasons that police cited for having trouble investigating this murder. Many of the men who would have known about David Tyler's last movements and who his acquaintances were did not want to come forward to say anything because they were either afraid of being targeted for discrimination by the police as gay men or because some of them had not come out as gay yet to their family members and didn't want their names on record. It was found out during the investigation that David Tyler and Eli Stutzman were acquainted since 1983. 
they ran in the same circles and possibly knew each other through the drug trade. Less than a month later, on December 5th, 1985, Dennis Slater was found shot to death in Colorado in the basement of a liquor store. He was just 24 years old and a student at Fort Lewis College. He was two weeks away from earning his degree in industrial psychology. As a student, to pay his way through college, he had been working at this liquor store two to three nights a week. Money was found missing from the register, and he had been shot in the back of the head. But there was no evidence of a struggle, which led investigators to believe that perhaps it was somebody that he was acquainted with or somebody he was not afraid of who he had let into the store and then had robbed him. Police tended to chalk this up to a simple robbery gone wrong, but the murder victim found a month earlier, David Tyler, was also an acquaintance of Dennis Slater. Slater had been to Tyler's home several times and had sometimes purchased drugs from him. Police now wondered whether somebody was targeting gay men for murder in Durango, Colorado. Around the same time, Eli Stutzman's roommate noticed that two of his rifles were missing. He asked him if he had taken them, but he denied it. But this was a lie, because on December 10th, 1985, which would have been just five days after Dennis Slater was found murdered, Eli sold the rifles for $210 at a pawn shop. Soon after both of these murders took place, Stutzman left town again, this time heading to Wyoming, finally to pick up his son. But he wasn't planning to keep Danny with him when he left Durango. Eli had sent a letter on to a man that he had met through a personal ad. The man had asked Eli to come and spend Christmas with him after they had written back and forth with each other for a few months. In a letter to this man dated December 11, Stutzman said that Danny, his son, might not be with him because Danny had instead wanted to, quote, spend Christmas with his friends. Danny was picked up by his father in Wyoming on December 13, 1985, and they left early the next morning. The Barlows did not hear again from Stutzman until April of 1986. Less than two weeks later, Danny Stutzman's body would be found on the side of the road in Nebraska. His father was the last person he had been seen with. On December 15, 1985, Stutzman arrived in Salina, Kansas to meet up with another man, Although he told him that his son would be with him, Stutzman arrived alone. This was just one day after he left with Danny from Wyoming. He told the man that his son was having so much fun with his foster parents over the Christmas holiday that he asked to stay. By December 20th, Stutzman made his way to Missouri to stay at the home of another man he met through a personal ad, leaving this time on December 23rd. By Christmas Eve, he was in North Canton, Ohio. He arrived unexpectedly back to his home state and showed up at the home of family friends. He also told them that Danny was away having fun with friends skiing in Wyoming and didn't want to leave. Before Stutzman left Ohio, he gave bags filled with Danny's clothes to them to give to their children. He said that Danny had outgrown them and didn't need them anymore. The family members were grateful for this gift, and they would later report that all the clothes were mostly new. Stutzman had also told his friends at this time that he had gone to see his parents, but his father had turned him away, refusing to speak to him. He stayed in Ohio until January 17th and then returned to Texas. But Stutzman gave money to his friends in Ohio for long-distance phone calls he had said he made on their phone. 
But later, these friends would notice that there were no phone calls to Wyoming on the bill, although many times Stutzman sounded like he was talking to his son on the phone, whom he said was staying in Wyoming. He was making fake phone calls so that they would believe that his son was still alive and that he was talking to him in Wyoming. By February, Stutzman had moved to Azle, Texas, and this is a small town near Fort Worth. It's not until April 1986, over a year after he's last seen with his son, he reports that his son is dead. He told a friend that he had just returned from his son's funeral. He said that Danny had died in a car accident in Salt Lake City, Utah. But his friend said that it was very odd because he gave him this news with no emotion attached to it at all. That same month, he sent a letter to Danny's grandparents, postmarked from New Mexico, but he told them that Danny was living with him and doing well in school. He said that he'd be taking Danny to visit them in the summer, which of course we know that Danny at this point had been dead for over a year. On July 29, 1986, he sent a letter to the Gingriches, Danny's maternal grandparents, postmarked from Fort Worth, Texas, with sad news. He said that Danny died in a car accident in Salt Lake City, just like he had told his friend three months earlier, but he said it had just happened the previous week on July 22nd. He said the car was supposedly driven by Dean Barlow and that Danny had died on Tuesday and his funeral had been held on Thursday in Wyoming. He reported that Danny had been buried at the Barlow Family Cemetery in Wyoming. He sent a similar letter to his own mother and father with this news. Amos Gingrich, Danny's maternal grandfather, didn't believe this. He reached out to the police in Wyoming who did an investigation. They could not find any record of a Barlow Family Cemetery, and there was also no records of an accident involving Danny Stutzman or Dean Barlow in their state. After they were able to find their information, they contacted the Barlows, who confirmed that this story was untrue. And about Danny, they said, quote, We had him until December 1985 and haven't seen him since. They told the investigators that they had talked to Eli a few times, but he always said that Danny wasn't available when they asked to speak to him directly. They gave Danny's grandfather a photo they had taken of Danny and Eli together on December 14th, the day that they left Wyoming. This would be the last photo taken of Danny. But the boy known as Little Boy Blue, the boy that was found on the side of the road in 1985, would not be connected to Eli Stutzman until the December 1987 Reader's Digest story came out. After reading this article, more than one person suspected that this could be Eli Stutzman's son, Danny. It was finally confirmed when his palm prints from a school record were matched to the autopsy prints from Little Boy Blue. On December 11, 1987, a warrant for Eli Stutzman was issued for felony child abuse and served on his last known address in Azel, Texas. On December 14th, the mobile home he was living in was surrounded, and he was arrested and taken into custody without incident. When told the charge he was being arrested for, Stutzman stated, I didn't have anything to do with that. Those charges aren't true. On January 12, 1988, Stutzman pleaded guilty to misdemeanor charges regarding the death of his son. In order to take this plea deal, he had to take the stand and tell exactly what had happened to his son. Eli claimed that his son had died from a throat infection while traveling from Wyoming to Ohio. He said that the boy was sick when he picked him up from the Barlows, and he continued to get worse. The Barlows confirmed that Danny was sick and taking medication, 
but simply for a virus infection that he had that was mild and was improving before he left. What was chilling about Eli Stutzman's testimony was that he spoke of his son in unemotional tones about what happened to him on the trip. He seemed very disconnected from these tragic events, making statements like, quote, as we were driving along, the boy seemed to be sleeping. I would talk to the boy, but he would not answer. I thought he was sleeping, end quote, not using his name. Stutzman testified that at about midnight in December 1985 on the drive to Ohio, he reached back to wake his son because he needed to take his medication. He grabbed his son's leg and talked to him, but when he got no response, he pulled off to the side of the road. He said he noticed that the boy's eyes were rolled back, his face was pale, and he had no pulse. He claimed that he tried mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, but he could not revive Danny. Stutzman said he tried to revive his son, and when it failed, quote, I decided to leave him and let God take care of him, end quote. He claimed to have spent several hours with Danny and prayed for the boy before leaving his corpse on the roadside. Quote, I had difficulty facing the fact that he had died. I couldn't understand. I couldn't figure out why, he said. He had taken him out of the car and laid him down on the side of the road, quote, covering him with snow. I would have buried him, he said, but I didn't have anything to dig with. When asked if Danny was still alive when he laid him on the snow, he answered, quote, That's a very good question. I don't think so, but he could have been. When he was asked why he lied about Danny's death afterwards, he said also, quote, That's a very good question. But the investigator noted where Danny's head was laying on the snow, underneath the snow had melted, causing him to believe that Danny was still warm and possibly alive when Stutzman left him there. For his defense, Stutzman's lawyer claimed that he believed the boy had died from carbon monoxide poisoning due to a faulty auto exhaust system. He also pointed out that three pathologists could not determine the exact cause of death, but autopsies, and there were two of them, would indicate that the carbon monoxide levels found in Danny's body were at no higher that might be absorbed during normal car travel. With no confession that he'd harmed Daniel and no cause of death ever determined for the boy, the murder charge simply never materialized. Stutzman could only be charged with concealing a death and abandoning a body. This is why he had agreed to plead guilty to the misdemeanor charges. And this is why his sentence was only 18 months in prison. But at the same time, investigators were trying to see if there was a connection between Stutzman and the two Colorado murders of David Tyler and Dennis Slater. But once Eli Stutzman was convicted of the misdemeanor charge of abandoning a body, this alerted Nebraska authorities who now sought to investigate him for the murder of Glenn Pritchett in 1985. In 1989, after serving the sentence in Nebraska, Stutzman was transported to Austin, where he was put on trial for the murder of Pritchett, his former roommate. At the time of the murders, he had been questioned by deputies, and this is when Stutzman had claimed that Pritchett had returned to Montana to be with his family but that soon after that, he and his son left town and moved to Austin. But now at the trial, he was more forthcoming with investigators. Stutzman now said that he had been home at the time that Glenn Pritchett was killed, but that he hadn't done it. He said that his gun may have been involved. He had woken up to the sound of a gunshot while he was sleeping in his room with Danny. But there was no physical evidence tying him to this murder, and the gun was never recovered. The Travis County DA wanted his Nebraska conviction allowed into evidence as a pattern of signature crimes, and these were some of the elements he wanted to bring into trial. 
He said that Glenn Pritchett's body was found dumped in a rural area just like Danny's was, and that there was an elaborate cover-up afterwards just like Danny, and that Stutzman also faked phone conversations that he allegedly had with the victim after he was actually dead, just like he had with Danny. The judge, however, only allowed the jury to hear that Danny was deceased, but nothing more. Most people, even including the prosecutors, believed that Stutzman would walk on this charge. So they were surprised when the jury convicted him after just a four-day trial. He was found guilty of murder on July 31, 1989, and was sentenced the next month to 40 years in Huntsville Prison. However, Stutzman would only serve 13 years of the 40-year sentence due to good behavior. While he was prison in 1990, he was named as a key suspect in the murders of David Tyler and Dennis Slater. Investigators in Durango had found out more info linking Stutzman with Tyler, people that had seen them together, and there was one fingerprint found at the crime scene that they tried to match to Eli Stutzman, but it wasn't a match. So they were able to get no further with that case. Yet to this day, most people believe that it was Eli Stutzman who was responsible for both of those murders. While Eli Stutzman was in prison, he worked on earning a college degree. He also started making up stories while he was in prison, saying that Danny's death was as a result of a conspiracy. He claimed at times that multiple children had died in Wyoming of a rare disease the same year as Danny's death, and this is what he would continue to say that Danny had died from. In 2005, he was released on parole and moved to Fort Worth, Texas, where he lived out his remaining years quietly in a small one-bedroom apartment. He made and sold small leather goods from this apartment. It was a skill that he had learned in prison. But he also still worked with horses occasionally. He had a dog named Sport. But neighbors also said that he was an abuser of crack cocaine, and he told many different stories about his time in prison. All of them, of course, lies. He told some of them that he had been incarcerated for drugs. To others, he told them it was for murder, but he said that he was innocent. To some people, he said that he had never been married and had no children. But to others, he said that he was a widower and that he had left his infant son with his Amish family because he was gay. So he was constantly still embellishing stories, making up stories, and lying about his whole life, just as he had done since he was a child. Eli Stutzman was found dead on January 31, 2007 at the age of 56 by suicide. In the weeks before his death, his neighbor said that his behavior had changed, he now had people in and out of his apartment at all hours. It appeared that he had gone back to his hard-partying lifestyle after spending so many years living quietly. They said that most of these people were drug users and sex workers and that his possessions started to disappear. Whether he gave them away or they were stolen or both, people are not quite sure. But some of the things that he had left were given away to friends who he told that he was going to Ohio to visit his dying father and was putting most of his things in storage or giving them away before he went. In reality, he was getting ready to end his own life. Neighbors had asked the police to perform a welfare check when they hadn't seen him for several days, and they found that he had inflicted a deadly wound to his forearm and opened up a vein and bled to death. The autopsy would also reveal that there was cocaine in his system at the time of his death and that he was HIV positive. It was only after his death that his neighbors, who had been living around him for several years, discovered who he really was and what he had really done. 
His body remained unclaimed, and he was buried in a pauper's grave. His family said that they did not want the attention from the public should he be buried in his hometown. His dog Sport was rescued by the local animal shelter and found a new home. Residents of Chester, Nebraska, still provide care for Danny's gravesite. The town even built a roadside memorial, and when a tornado destroyed the monument, they rebuilt it again, giving credence to the emblem on it, a small town with a big heart. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you'd like to get all episodes of Once Upon a Crime ad-free, you can become a Patreon member. When you help support the show with a membership starting at just $2 a month, you can get early release ad-free episodes, as well as bonus episodes you won't hear anywhere else. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to find out more and join. We're also on YouTube. You can listen to all our episodes with accompanying videos on YouTube. There's a link to our channel in the show notes, or just search for Once Upon a Crime podcast on YouTube. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. I hope you'll come back next week to hear another chapter in the series, Holidays in Hell. Until next time, be good to one another. <laughs>